0: Hi guys and welcome to episode 6 of the Northern Rugby Podcast. On today's show we're joined by the Flying Dutchman Tim Visser, who we're very excited about. In today's podcast Tim tells us about how he was discovered in the Amsterdam 7th tournament by Newcastle Falcons and how he was brought over to the North East to become part of the Newcastle Falcons Academy. He also discusses how Falcons coaches actually thought he was a back row player, so Tim found himself in scrums, rocks and malls, which of course he was not a fan of. We talk about his move north to Edinburgh and his amazing try scoring record in the Pro 14, as well as some standout games in those Edinburgh days, including an amazing 48-47 win over Racing Metro in the Heineken Cup. Tim also talks us through playing for the Barbarians and getting capped by Scotland and what those experiences meant to him as well. Finally, we're going to chat through his move back to England with Quinns and discuss a very controversial 2016 Challenge Cup final and hear what Tim had to say about how this game finished. So let's go ahead and get straight into it and hear Tim's thoughts. Hi you Timmy, all right, Matt? Hi, oh, yes, I'm very good. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. How's uh how's things been in 2020 for you so far?
1: It's not bad actually. Um as for most people, lockdown was slightly boring. Um, but you know, luckily that was um all it really was. Um you know, obviously sitting inside um and, and being stuck for, for a couple of months and not really being able to do anything then. You're kind of going to your garden uh, and and uh, and exercise and barbecue uh, <laughs> isn't the worst thing in the world, but it does kind of get a bit monotonous after a while.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. um Well, thanks very much for coming on the uh, the podcast with us. You are our first Dutch slash Scottish guest, so thanks very much for that. Oh, fantastic!
1: The first, and, the first and only one, I reckon.
0: <laughs> um Typically, what we do is we just have a a very casual look back over your career and, and talk about the. The highs and the lows and and are and yeah. some hidden gems. So um if you, if you don't mind, just take take us back to the start, um how you got scouted by the falcons and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, pretty
1: um, pretty unusual one really. Um I I was a youngster playing playing rugby in Holland and um got invited at the time to to play um for a team called the Bulldogs, believe it or not, who were uh, made up of uh, English um, professional rugby players, mixed with a bit of Dutch up-and-coming talent. So um, I got selected for that by the skin of my teeth because I was only fifteen, I think, at the time, or one or two, and actually too young to play senior rugby. Adam Sam Sevens. So I had to go to um, a sort of almost like a medical with the national uh, team doctor for Dutch rugby. Who um, luckily allowed me to play, um, and uh, I ended up playing with uh, Je- well James Grindle and Joe Shaw, two, uh, right, two obviously be. very well known names in, in the northeast, but um, also um, Jamie Rennie, who was in the academy at Newcastle at the time, young boy, and um, actually ended up having a really good tournament. Um, you know, my first taste of senior rugby, albeit in a sevens format. But um, you know, really enjoyed myself. Um, must have left a bit of an impression because um Shorzy afterwards said, Oh, um, I'm gonna speak to our Academy manager about you because, you know, I think you deserve a chance to to see uh, what you can do in in English rugby. So um he he therefore reported me to John Fletcher, you know, another obviously very well known name up north. Um and John gave me uh, the immense chance to um, come on a trial week. So I came up um, that summer <clears throat> and um, spend a bit of time with the academy, watch the first team train, and you know whatever else. And off the back of that, they uh, well, they offered me a place in the academy and, and opted to put me at um, Barnard Castle School.
0: Very good. So and
2: it must have been tough for you to actually. Come over, you know, at the age of what sixteen, to a different country, and you know, pretty much on your own, and then you know, try and make your new life over there. But as well, being a professional rugby player and training, and you know, being educated in a foreign country.
1: Yeah, I think you know you're you're obviously very naive at that age, and I I certainly was. It just seemed like a great adventure, and I did just didn't see a reason why I shouldn't give it a go, um, which is a great way to look at it. But I was also very fortunate in that um, Newcastle had the foresight to put me at a school and a boarding school at that. So, actually, I didn't just go from living with my mum and dad to having to look after myself. I went into you know a pretty famous boarding school um, where I was essentially just looked after anyway. So, you know, wake up at 7 o'clock, put your laundry in, go to breakfast, school, rugby, uh homework, sleep, uh everything's taken care of. So you know, it was a very good sort of middle ground for, for someone of, of that age.
0: Good stuff. And you you seem to break into the um the, the team pretty quickly. Obviously I I tagged you a few weeks ago in the Falcons graphic about the youngest debutants. Yeah um, so so what what do you remember about your debut? Um not a
1: whole lot to be completely honest. <laughs> I remember when I came over to, to England, I was 16, and I was, a, I was a little bit slow to be a back. So John Fletcher kind of had a look at me, you know, sort of tall guy, broad shoulders, let's stick him in the back row. So I actually played a lot of my rugby um, at back row um, at school. Uh, and also when I joined uh, the academy full time after school, I was considered a back row. So I was a six slash eight. Um as you can imagine, any back that gets made a back rower hates mauling, hates rucks. I absolutely <laughs> hated scrummaging. Um, but lucky for me, in that first season, there was quite a few injuries on the outside backs. I think, I'm not exactly sure, but John Rudd was injured. Uh, someone else was injured. And they kind of just looked around the room and thought, who else can fill in their wing? Yeah. Uh, and I guess, you know, I was quite fortunate in that. Rob Andrews signed me but John Fletcher quite quickly in my first season in pre-season actually took over as first team coach so he knew um, I was quick enough to play on the wing I developed a bit of speed within that time and um, they said well you know have a go have a go at this and I remember the training session where they said it and the forwards were just about to do line outs and malls and I looked at the back the backs were shiny each other's shoes I so think, well, I'm going to go over there uh, which was which was just you know being set free, which was absolutely phenomenal. But um, I then went away uh, with the first team. It might have been Glasgow. We had a we had a warm up game somewhere where I played a little bit on the wing. Didn't really get to do much. And then there was an injury for that first game of the season against Worcester. So I think um, Tom May was on was on the wing, and um, I got. A chance on the on the bench, which you know in itself was incredibly nerve wracking for someone of that age. I think I think it was eighteen or nineteen or nineteen, as you illustrated last year, uh, last week. Sorry. Um, and um, I remember sitting on the bench, and then we were losing really quite heavily. And I think Fletcher just thought, oh, he might as well throw Tim on see what see what happens kind of thing. <laughs> and as I came on, we kind of started working our way back into the game. I think there was one or two tries. And I, I'd got my hands on the ball a couple of times. you know, made a couple of yards here and there, nothing too special. And then with about, well, with actually no time left, um, Matt Burke got the ball on the outside, made it a two on one, put me away. And I had a, I had a, two, I had a one on one with Garvey, the, the Worcester winger um, at the time. And um, it just felt like sevens again. And, it was always kind of my my speciality to to finish stuff off one on one, you know. And I think throughout my career that was one of my strengths. If you give me the ball one on one, especially with the player on angle, I would finish it nine out of ten times. And um, it was just it was just instinct to step back inside, you know, went over the try line, scored, but had no idea that there was no time left. So I remember um, jumping back up and wanting to run back to halfway. I was like, oh, let's you know, we need to win this. We were. We're, we're not ahead. I had no idea what the score was. And I was just happy to be there. <laughs> and, um, and I remember that there's actually a picture somewhere of Phil Dowson grabbing me and pointing at the clock. And there was actually no more time left. Um, so <laughs> not only had I scored on my debut, I'd also scored the winning try, which was which was really quite special. Um, and I just remember afterwards, you know, speaking to Sky Sports and whatever else. And then finally, after about half an hour, picking up my phone and everyone had seen it. I must have had 100 texts, everyone from school, but also all my friends back home in Holland because they would have had Sky and they were, they were able to watch it. I called my dad and I kind of felt like I had to try and explain it. I was like, you're not going to believe what just happened. He goes, no, I know exactly what just happened. I've been yeah. watching it. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it was it was just a whirlwind. And it, was, um, it couldn't have gone better for me.
2: Yeah, I, I actually remember that game. I had a season ticket in the North stand because it was in that sort of North, West Corner, I think yeah. I it, yeah, because um, yeah, it was a pretty awful game up until that point. So, oh,
0: shocking. <laughs> it's um, it's obviously a great moment for you, and you, you probably think at that point you're going to break into the team and uh, and move forward. But you were kind of in and out, and you did a couple of loan spells as well. So, 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 what were your thoughts around the loan spells that you did?
1: Oh, I think the loan spells were probably slightly over exaggerated I was a young player you know like you said I I made my debut um I think I scored in my first three games and then kind of discovered the nightlife in Newcastle got distracted here and there (laughs) Thought thought I'd made it you know like a lot of young boys at that age would have done it um but also John Fletcher got fired which didn't help um you know, John was always a big believer in me I still think he's one of the best coaches I've ever had especially you know one-on-one coaching um, he was at my wedding um, I still try and keep in touch with him and when I was down at Quinn's I would see him every now and again when he was visiting young young Quinn's players in his in his capacity with um, with England um, but uh, Steve Bates t- took over um, I wouldn't say Steve and I got on very well. But also, you know, Steve was in a difficult position in that he was trying to keep a team up in the Premiership and perform with, you know, a limited amount of players, a limited budget, whatever else, and he needed he needed the, the finished article and not, you know, a young winger like myself that didn't really know how how to defend or uh, attack like a winger, um, but was, you know. Pretty good with the ball in hand, and I think you know after a while you obviously get found out. You can't just you can't just switch positions from the forwards to the backs in the Premiership and perform week in week out uh, and actually do a solid job, especially when you play against some of the best teams in the Premiership. And um, yeah. I probably got found out a bit, um, came in and out, uh, you know, played when needed. Uh, and like, you know, like any young player at Newcastle, if you weren't selected for the first team, uh, you you could go and play, or you were expected to go and play with one of the, one of the close teams. So I played a bit for Tyndale, which was great fun. I still speak to a few of the guys there. Um, went back to Mountain Park for a bit. Um, but, you know, again, they call it loan, but it's it's just whenever you weren't selected, you could go and get a game there. Just, like any other club would make you do um which you know i really enjoyed i I played for mountain park when i was still at school as a youngster and you know being able to get back there a bit and playing was 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 brilliant um i did have a proper loan spell at northampton saints at one point
2: yeah i i did come across that i can't recall it at all was that that was there in the championship?
1: again it was only yeah it was only about four weeks and um it was when Chris Ashton had just signed for Northampton, yes, yeah. and they were in the Championship. And Chris, um, you know, coming from rugby league, had no idea. He had literally no idea. And I came over to kind of fill the gap a little bit until they could, you know, explain to him how it all worked. But you know, as soon as, soon as he figured it all out, he was electric, and um, you know, still obviously playing at the highest level for Harlequins now. Great player, but he just needed a couple of weeks to um, to kind of get used to that. So I had about four weeks with Northampton in the um, in the championship, which again was you know good fun, good experience. Lived down there but for a bit and um, and played about four or five games until I actually figured out how to play rugby, and um, <laughs> then yeah, got to the end of my contract, which I'd signed under Fletch, and you know I remember. I went to see uh, Batesy and we kind of had a look at each other and both pretty f- soon figured out that this wasn't going anywhere, um, which was, uh, you know, my departure to Edinburgh.
0: Yeah, and when that time came, was was Edinburgh your kind of, your only destination or were there other teams in England? Uh,
1: it was a bit of a weird one because, you know, being a Dutch national, um, I actually ended up playing for, for England under 18s at school because um, it's England schools and I was at an English school. Apparently, that's the that's the only prerequisite for <laughs> you being able to play. Uh, and then I also um, got selected for the England In- Intermediate Academy uh, subsequently when I was about to start getting um, qualified for England. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I was nowhere near an England team, obviously, um, but that was quite a, a big date because after spending two years at school which don't count towards that I had three years at Newcastle and so I, I theoretically qualified to play for England the day I moved to Scotland um, <laughs> which was a bit of a weird one but that yeah. in, in contract negotiations that's really important because even more so now Premiership Club want, want players that are eligible for England for you know, various reasons not just financially but also um, because they're obviously in, in England mm. Um and uh, I got a couple of nibbles from, I think it was Leicester at the time, um, maybe Gloucester, but just not quite what I wanted. Um, no, not real serious. Uh, no real serious contracts or too short. And um, I remember speaking to my agent, and he said, "Well, Andy Robinson is has moved up to Edinburgh, uh, you know, after he was England coach, and he obviously knew about you because you were in the England academies." Um, and he said he, w- he would love to have you up there, so um, I drove up the road, uh, I remember my missus was doing her law exams at Newcastle at the time, so we drove up the um, the A68, windy and everything as it is, and she was trying to revise and, and scribble stuff down for exams, which you can't imagine went very well um, got lost in Edinburgh and eventually saw Murrayfield from afar and kind of made it to uh, to the stadium, and just had a real good chat with Andy, um, you know, again, fantastic coach, completely different from what Fletcher was. You know, Fletcher was an amazing man-manager, um, you know, very good on the on the pitch in actually guiding young talent as to, to what they should be doing, whereas Andy was very much, you know, director of rugby type, um, you know, steering his, um, his coaches. Uh, but nonetheless, had a great chat and got introduced to a guy called Rob Moffat, which is, I mean, he could be Fletcher's twin, you know, very similar, uh, Scottish twin, may I say, Um, very similar, very good on the pitch with young players uh, and just, you know, got hooked by his story and what he saw from me and what he wanted. And obviously coming to Murrayfield, big stadium facilities were second to none. Edinburgh just um, finished second in the league. I was like, right, well, this sounds like a a great idea. So I went up to to Edinburgh, signed a two year deal, um, which later was dubbed as a a project player pathway thing, but you know it really wasn't. I was just a young player that needed a job, and uh, yeah, I ended up signing for Edinburgh, which was which was really uh, really cool at the time.
0: And what's what were your kind of first impressions of of Pro 14? Because I I assume you didn't really watch much of it, or, or did you at the time?
1: No, I had no idea. Uh, you know, down south or south of the border, there is no... You don't see the Pro 14. Obviously, now Sky took it over for a while, so you you saw it for a bit. But back then, I had no idea. I obviously knew that, you know, Munster, Ulster, um, Cardiff, the big teams were, were in it. But I had no idea how it worked. But, um, you know, that didn't really come into my mind, I think. I just... I went to see the club. The facilities are great. The coaches are great. I got offered a really good contract. I was like, yeah, this
0: sounds like a good idea. Um, Well, something obviously clicked because uh, obviously from from 2010 to 2013, for those four seasons, you're the top try scorer every year. Uh, You score 48 tries, which is sensational in four years. So what was it about Edinburgh that just kind of clicked with you? Um, Well, first of all, they they believed in me
1: and you know, I, I started playing almost straight away and all I also started delivering straight away, which made that relationship a little bit easier. But um, I think the way Edinburgh played, they, they were a very dominant team, um, but they played the ball around quite a lot. We didn't have huge forwards, which meant that we had to play the ball around. There was a big focus on skills, uh, but it also meant that the wingers got a lot of ball in their hands. So... Um, you know, as probably is the, the red line through my career, I'm very good with a ball in hand. And the more of it I get, the, the better the better results I tend to get. Um, so I got a lot of ball. Um, you know, they just finished second in the league. Uh, and again, that first season, we were pushing for top four really quite easily. I think we were second in the league at Christmas and then dropped off ever so slightly. You know, we were playing hiding cup rugby. Edinburgh are a good team and it suited my, uh, my style of playing.
0: Yeah, and there, there's two games specifically um that I wanted to ask you about that I remember very well. One of them was the in the twenty twelve Hannikan Cup season, the um the epic game against Racing Metro you played at Murrayfield. <laughs>
1: the roller coaster, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um still to this day, one of the best games I've ever seen. Just what, what oh. were your thoughts on that?
1: Oh I mean it's it's absolutely crazy. We um I remember we we obviously, you know, the, the French, they Bear in mind, wrestling weren't that dominant at the time. You know, they had Shabal and had a couple of other big guys, but they're not the Rossing that they are nowadays. And um, you know, they came to they came to Murrayfield, and I remember Andy Robertson saying beforehand at that point he was he was Scotland coach. He's like, you know, these are the games where I want to see you step up in. Um, we would love for you to to come and play for Scotland, but I need you to prove that you can do it. And um, I, I must have had, you know, one of, one of the games of my life at this point, you know, we everything was clicking. I was playing with a centre partnership who were just literally throwing with the ball every opportunity they got. And um, we started scoring tries. I think I scored a try within the first couple of minutes of the game. Uh, but again, you know, Edinburgh weren't that good defensively. We were all about scoring tries. You know, if they scored four, we would score five and that's how we'd win games. And, um, and obviously, Racing, French, flew, threw the ball around and also started scoring. Um, and very click, quickly, our, our grip on that game disappeared. And um, I remember we were in the sheds at halftime. And I don't know who it was. It might have been Moffat or, or Greg Lake or someone, one of the captains, said, oh, you know, when when we come out for the second half, we need to score first. Otherwise, we're absolutely gone. And um, we went out and the first thing that happened is they scored another try. <laughs> yeah. so, so at this point, we're, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 points behind. Uh, and it was kind of just, you know, balls to the wall, like just play everything. Don't kick anything away, just play. And we started scoring, we started scoring. Um, and again, you know, not with with not long left to go, um, I got the ball on the left-hand side. There was just a little bit of an overlap. I, th- I threw a dummy and I managed to score, um, score the winner. But, you know, at this point, it's 56-55 or something like that. Unbelievable, unbelievable score, like a cricket score almost. <laughs> um, but, yeah, absolutely, knack. I remember how tired we were afterwards just trying to run everything. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll always be remembered as one of the most, probably, miraculous games I've ever played in.
0: Absolutely. And um, the second game I wanted to ask you about is the, uh, is the semi-final um, because I'm, I'm an Ulster fan. I'm a, I'm a Belfast lad. Yeah. But I re- I remember that game and I remember being horrendously nervous beforehand. Uh, yeah. What what's it like being so close to the final and playing in a match which is pretty much
1: 50-50? Yeah, it's strange. It didn't feel like that at the time. We were incredibly dominant that Heineken Cup season. We were terrible in the league. We were something like 10th in the league, couldn't put a string of results together. But in the Heineken Cup, we just we just turned it on and, and when we kinda of got towards that um qualification point and also that quarter final, our team was just geared towards the Highland Cup. They would yep. send bomb put bomb into the league knowing there is no relegation. Yeah. And um and save save all of us for the um for the Highland Cup. So bear in mind we had the biggest uh, domestic crowd for a European quarter final at Murrayfield the week before for the Toulouse game. You know, and a big, strong, dominant, to lose team came over to Murrayfield in you know in front of something like thirty-eight thousand people, and um, we absolutely thumped them. Like we literally, we we went through them like a steam train. Uh, we didn't even try to play rugby. I think I think what we said is their back three are terrible under the high ball. We're kicking everything. Everyone just run after it, and within the first couple of minutes of the game, someone put up a bomb. We all just ran after it, nailed the guy dropped it, and. Mike Blair scores the first one and the whole game was just like that. Is it's crazy. And you know, to then I think that was almost our final to win that game against Toulouse. We then went over to to Ulster full of confidence, but you know, they were so strong. They were physical, they were well organized. And I think the result was only a try difference in the end, but that really was skewed by a late try from us. We were under the pump, the whole game never felt like we were in that game whatsoever. And you know, this was, and you know, oh, don't get me wrong, also still dominant. But this was when Ulster were you know, very dominant in Europe. And um, yeah, even though even though that result looked a lot closer, we we never had a chance of getting to that final. As soon as we um, we knew that, as soon as we were about ten minutes into that game, I'd say.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you said there that the Toulouse game felt like your final, like we beat. Um... Monster at Thurman Park in the quarterfinals, and that kind of felt like our final as well. Yeah. So, uh, I, I Who went to the final
1: that year? Opposite Ulster.
0: Ah, uh, Leinster. Leinster battered us. Yeah. So um, just
1: same story again, isn't it? Leinster, yeah. Leinster, Leinster. <laughs>
0: it seems, it seems <laughs> to happen every time we um we play them, unfortunately. Yeah. So Timmy you
2: you then went on to play for the Barbars I mean, it it's they are the most special club in world rugby and, you know, potentially sport just because of who they are, their values, what they stand for, and just bringing together a bunch of um, rugby legends and throwing them out on a rugby field for a week together. And, you know, what's that like to to be a bar bar and, and then obviously to score a couple of tries against England as well must've been quite nice, but what was that sort yeah. of thing like? Yeah. Uh.
1: I mean, easily the best rugby week of my life, I'd say. Um, I remember getting the call. So I was obviously um, the, the uncapped player uh, in that campaign. Um, they always tend to take one player who isn't capped. Yeah. And um, I remember getting the call from my agent. I was, in, I was on holiday in Marbella with I don't know, a couple of friends. And this was, you know, three weeks into the off-season. So I had probably been on the pump every night for three weeks at this point point. <laughs> uh, and he calls me and he goes mate um someone's dropped out of the bar bus um they'd love for you to come and i initially i said no way i said no no bloody way i'm not going i am um, i've been on i've been on it for about three weeks now i'm not fit i can't do this and he goes mate have a think about it and then call me back so i called my dad i was like, "Dad." Um, they want to go play for the Barbarians. I'm not quite sure. I'm absolutely hanging. What's What do you think? And he, says, <laughs> he, he literally said, you're going. He says, you're 100% going. So um, I end up coming back from this holiday you know, a couple of days early, uh, fly down to London, uh, and it's just a whirlwind. You rock up, you have a huge bag of stash. Um, everything's paid for the whole week. So, you know, we arrived on the Monday. We didn't play until Saturday everything's paid for the whole week, you know, going out night clubs, restaurants, and you know, players go out. We were, uh, I think I was drunk every day. Um, <laughs> you know, there was players, there was a couple of players who, who were drunk the night before the game. We had a team <laughs> run in Hyde Park and Freddie Michelak pulled out a bo- bo- couple of balls of champagne uh, to toast the fact that we had such a great week, which was the day before the game. So i <laughs> sip and sipping champagne the day before the game. During the game, they asked, they ask him, um, Freddie, what do you want for uh, in your bottle when you're um, taking goal kicks?" And he goes, "Champagne, please." So when you see, if you go back into that game when he takes conversions, there's a kit man running on with a, a white um, serviette draped over his arm and a and a bottle of bottle of champagne and a flute, and he drinks champagne during the game. It's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. Um, but yeah, we were we were we had a fantastic. I think we we trained or we tried to train train twice you know, Bastaro couldn't, couldn't run. He was so drunk the day after he was, <laughs> we hardly got any training in. And, um, I remember the, literally before we went to the stadium, uh, there was a, like a last team meeting, like you normally have, you know, normally you'd go through last bits of video or talk through the game plan again. So we're all sitting there and, you know, bearing in mind this is 11 o'clock day of the game. And, um, Suddenly the um it was actually Mickey Steele Bodger, who sadly passed away now. He um he was obviously chairman at the time and he stood up, and he was like, Right, guys, we've all had a um a fantastic time, you know, a great week together, but one amongst us has uh, has taken it too far and um we've unfortunately had to call the police. I knew exactly what was going on straight away because it was my birthday that day. And um so <laughs> The, the lights go out and these sirens come on, like, woo, woo, woo. And these two horrific Brazilian strippers come in. <laughs> and they go, we're looking for Mr. Visser. And I was like, oh, fuck no. But <laughs> so in front of the whole squad, you know, bearing in mind some of my rugby legends in there, you know, Parise, Michelac, Bastereau, Carl Heyman, <laughs> you know, name it. It was, a, it was a star-studded team. They tie me to a chair. Ladle me in baby oil and you know literally slap their breasts around my face and God knows what else. You um, know I was covered in baby oil. If you see during the game, I actually dropped a ball pretty early on, which I'm pretty sure it was because my hands were still really slippy. Um, <laughs> but you know just stuff like that. Like you couldn't make it up. It was absolutely brilliant. <clears throat> and yeah, and then to play against an England team which had quite a few players in it which were still trying to play themselves into a World Cup was uh, was quite special. And um, you know, to score two, but also to score the winner again, you know, with not much time left, was, uh, yeah, it was phenomenal. <laughs>
2: so, uh, I mean, like, the beauty about it is it's just, it goes back to like the amateur days, doesn't it? Where it's just, about, oh. you know, a group of 30 lads just having some drinks, having a good time and throwing a rugby ball around and, not sort of taking the game too seriously and actually just yeah. sort of going back to your roots a little bit.
1: And then beating England at Twickenham. It's, yeah, it's, and they actually beat they beat Wales at uh, the Millennium the the, uh, the week after as well.
2: Yeah, it's the cherry on the cake, isn't it? Um, yeah. So you were uncapped at the time when you when you played there. Uh, obviously, you had you had Scotland uh, coming for you as well. Um, was there was there ever a point in your career where you thought I'm going to represent Holland, or were you always sort of um, no, looking... yeah, there was,
1: there was. and um, you know, I think, I think first of all that Barba's game was was an, a pretty important milestone for me as a player. Without noting it at the time, but the media were all keeping a pretty tight eye on whether I could actually deliver at the international stage. So that, the fact that I scored two yeah. in you know, what's, what's dubbed as an international game um, was a was a big moment for me looking back. But you know, obviously. I didn't really like, realize this at the time, probably due to my alcohol levels. Um,
2: <laughs> but um,
1: when I left Newcastle in 2009, that was actually the year, uh, you know, I said this earlier, where I qualified to, to theoretically play for England.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I hadn't played for Holland due to the simple fact that I left Holland, you know, as a 16 year old boy. So when I lost, when I lost the, ch- the the theoretical chance to to qualify for England, um, we did we did start speaking to Holland again, me and my dad. Um, you know, my dad's represented Holland sixty seven times. Um, my little brother has has now played fifty times for them, I believe. Um, you know, we we are very closely um, involved with with Holland still. I'm not, but my family are. Um so yeah, we, we did start talking to them a little bit. Um and you know, I I expressed my interest. You know, if I if I couldn't play for England, you know, again, um I was nowhere near playing for England, but but, but theoretically I would have been able to. Um, you know, of course I wanted to play for Holland, it's my country. Um the, the big problem being that um Holland at the time were very low in the rankings. Um, you know, they're they're doing good at the moment, they're they're a lot higher up, but uh, this meant that their games were almost always played um, not during the conventional uh, international periods. Right. So they clashed with Edinburgh games. So therefore, I actually ended, never ended up playing for Holland. Uh, and very later on, um, you know, I ended up playing for Scotland uh, again. You know, due to the fact that I'd never played for Holland, which, you know, looking back is is a very important. Um, decision, even though it didn't feel like it at the time, I just didn't play for Holland because it, it clashed with my Edinburgh games.
0: And what was it like then making, making your debut for Scotland? How did that feel?
1: oh it was it was impressive it was unbelievable um you yeah, know i was quite lucky to to make my debut away um against fiji uh, i say lucky it's it's not that lucky because it was 38 degrees it was absolutely boiling um but it meant that i could do it under the radar uh you know i didn't have the pressure of being at Murrayfield with 67000 fans but it was a very it was a very conscious um, important moment in my career in that the media had been speculating for years. about it. as soon as I started doing well for for Edinburgh, um, they found out that I never played for Holland. Uh, the speculation started. You know, is he a project player? Blah blah blah. And you know, again, I wasn't. But um, they started linking me to Scotland pretty early on, and um, therefore there was a big there was a big road leading up to this first cap. And I think, <clears throat> you know, in rugby, international rugby is the pinnacle of anyone's career. So. I think you know going away with Scotland and, and um sitting out the first game against Australia because I wasn't qualified yet and then finally you know getting to the point where I was going to make my debut against Fiji um I just remember standing on the pitch and just wanting the anthems to finish and, and and the whistle to go so that I could you know call myself an international rugby player so yeah that was a that was a very important moment but but also very consciously so for me
0: yeah and your your debut obviously went very well, two two tries against Fiji. But your home debut must have been something special. Uh, I, was, I you know again, um,
1: I seem to I seem to always have had the luck of being able to turn it on during some of these really special moments. And I think um, you know, scoring away twice against Fiji was amazing. You know, scoring twice on your debut is a dream is a dream come true. But it's under the radar. You know, you're away. The game was in the middle of the night in the UK. I think my parents were in a local pub somewhere which they managed to keep open till three in the morning to watch it. Um, but then making your de- your home debut against the All Blacks, that is, it's a different story. And, and I remember, <clears throat> unfortunately, Andy Robinson told me about two months before the game that he was going to start me against the All Blacks. So I was nervous for about two months straight. <laughs> every, every night I had weird dreams about being late for the game and God knows what else. And, um you know, when we finally got to it, it, it was really quite special uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously, making my home debut in front of the Scottish fans, I felt very welcomed by uh, everyone in the country. I felt part of the country and I still do. You know, I live here again now. Um, and uh, But also, when the bus entered the stadium, um, it does this traditional drive around the stadium to the changing rooms, which is which are on the west side, which is the other side from where you come in. Um, and you get you know guided in by by the piper band um, playing uh, d- doing their thing. So you drive you, you drive really slowly, and all the fans stand on either side and walk with the bus. Um, but because because I'd started you know making quite a lot of waves back home in the media in terms of you know what I was doing over here in rugby, um, a lot of Dutch people start coming over to you know Edinburgh games or whatever else. But They'd obviously got wind of the fact that I was gonna make my home debut against against the All Blacks. So when I looked out of the bus, there must have been got about a hundred Dutch supporters all dressed in orange walking <laughs> along the bus and just shouting at me. And it for some reason that got really emotional. It really got me because it was kind of, you know, the symbolic moment from leaving leaving Holland to to playing for Scotland. Um and I remember when I um when we were singing the national anthems, I looked up and, and and high up somewhere in the West End, there was this huge crowd of Dutch people. And they had this huge Dutch flag, which you know must have been about five meters um, long. And right in the middle of it was um, good luck with your debut, Tim Viss or something like that. I can't exactly remember <laughs> what it was. But it was just it was just so symbolic. Um and then you know again If you ask anyone in Holland about rugby, you know half of them will never heard of the sport or think it's played with helmets, but they all know the All Blacks. That is, you know, it's the pinnacle of anyone's career playing against the All Blacks. And then, you know, as a Dutch young boy to come over here and have that whole whole journey of making it to international rugby for your adopted country, but then to also score against what's undoubtedly the best team in the world uh, twice is. you know, it is incredibly special. Uh, and again, something that I didn't realise at the time, you know, you just scored two tries. Yeah, great, fantastic. Let's have a beer. Who's next, kind of thing. Um, but looking back on that, that was, that was really amazing.
2: So, I mean, it's you know, fantastic that first game, the, well, first home game against New Zealand. And then, um, you know, you went on to score a couple of tries in the Six Nations as well. Um, but then, sort of moving forward to actually get it, go to a World Cup uh, in 2015, that must have been special. And sort of having that journey that Scotland went on, and yeah, I mean, everyone knows what happened in that. Uh, <laughs> that quarter, yeah. Which, even as was. an Englishman, I was a bit. Uh, I, was, I felt a bit bad for uh, the Scots that day, but um, yeah. you know yeah. that was an, that, that was an incredible journey. What was it like sort of being in a World Cup, but but more so being a World Cup in England as well? Was it? Was that an extra incentive to go to, um, you know, to come down to England and, you know, Yeah, the I think wins? so.
1: Um, you know, again, there's a whole story that leads up to this. For me personally, there have been quite a few coach changes at Edinburgh. And we ended up with Alan Solomons, who currently coaches um, Worcester, uh, who, again, you know, is a is a great stand-up guy, um, you know, very honest, uh, very direct, which as a, as a Dutch person, I really appreciate, but just didn't see rugby the same way I did. I hardly got any ball. Um, You know, my, my try scoring records dropped off a cliff those seasons. And, um, it actually meant that I start, I started losing. I had a bad injury in 2013. I broke my leg, which didn't help. But when I came back from that, you know, I just couldn't really show what I could do. I never really got much ball. We didn't play the kind of rugby that Edinburgh used to play. um, I started losing. I lost my Scotland starting spot, really, um, and um, I think it was actually quite special the fact that I made that World Cup squad. Um, you know, I came off the back of a couple of very challenging seasons, uh, where again, like I share, I couldn't really do uh, what I used to do. Um, and then to go into that, you know, make the initial squad uh, was brilliant. You know, that that was the first step, and you know, luckily I. Um, I really shown in the warm up games. I scored two tries against Italy. I played really well against Ireland away, and managed to get into that squad, which was not really a given for me at the time. You know, I had really uh, dropped back in the pecking order. So to make that first of all was was a huge achievement for for me personally. Um, but you don't realize how big World Cups are. It is it is rugby on steroids. It is huge, and the fact that it's in in England, on, on home soil, uh, is uh, just magnifies everything for the Scots. You know, we played one of our games um, in Gloucester, and then we moved up north, and, and it might there might have as well been home games for us. You know, we played yeah, at Leeds, uh, where I mean, the majority of the stadium was filled with Scots. We went up to St James Park for our last two games, and it was just like being at Murrayfield. It was it was brilliant. The um, the towns got painted painted blue. Um, and and it was amazing. It, it was just, it's like being in a tiny fishbowl full of rugby nonstop stop around you. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure on you. Uh, and luckily, um, we delivered. I, I played against the USA. I scored. I played against South Africa, you know, in which I played quite well, I thought. Uh, but we lost that game. Uh, and then, you know, due to selection, I missed out on the last game against Samoa. Which um, which we want to qualify, and they essentially went with with the same team uh, for the game against Australia. And you know we we all know what happened. I was in the stands, and it was literally the, the roller coaster was was phenomenal. I was sitting in stands, and one moment I felt like wow we're going to semi final. The next moment I'm I'm off and I'm starting my uh, my rugby career. At Quinns because I'd signed at Quinns at the time, um, and our preparations for that game against Australia. We were based at the Quinn's training ground, so you know, ten minutes from my new house. Uh, my wife had uh, just recently had our first boy, so she just moved down there. As we went down to train there, she moved down uh, with the movers, and everything got moved in. Um, and you know, it ended up that we lost that game on a on a pretty sour note. Uh, and you know, the next morning, I jumped in my car and and moved on to my new life with Quinn's within the space of ten minutes.
0: Yeah. And uh, the the Quinn's decision, I imagine, after your Edinburgh career and, and everything you've done there, there must have been quite a few teams after you, based on your try scoring record alone.
1: Yeah, um, there was uh, nothing more interesting than Quinn's for sure. Um, there was a couple the, there was a lot of interest from in France, um, but again, you know, the French teams at the time kind of demanded that you stop playing internationally which I wasn't ready to do. I got an offer from Japan, which was incredibly lucrative. But again, you know that th- you can't play for Scotland. Um, there was other clubs in, um, in the premiership who were interested, but just meeting Connor O'Shea was, was inspirational. You know, again, it was like a John Fletcher moment. I call it, um, I met him uh, and we had a chat. I literally flew into Heathrow, met him at Heathrow and then flew back a couple of hours later and, um, and the, the the influence or the, the impression he left on me was was incredible. I remember saying to him, bearing in mind I came from an Edinburgh side at the time who weren't playing any rugby, were kicking everything away, were just defending constantly. And he said, we, the, the way we play rugby is so ingrained at Queen's. We are such an attacking side that we'd rather lose a game than deviate from the way that we believe rugby is to be played. And literally, my ears pricked up, and I was like, "I'm coming! I don't care what you're offering me, <laughs> I'm coming." Yeah. And they offered me a good contract, three years, um, during which Connor O'Shea, you know, moved on to uh, to Italy, which which was a real shame. Um, but uh, yeah, I, had a, I had a great time at Queens. Made made friends for life. Um, it's an incredible club, <clears throat> you know. World class facilities, world class setup. Um, you know, it, it's like being with an international team week in week out the, the setups and and everything they have and use and possess is is phenomenal and you know I signed at the same time as Jamie Roberts and James Hall well, two huge international names um and they uh we became really good friends uh and actually we we probably looking back we probably underperformed a little bit the, the quality we had in that Queens team you know all the England players from Chris Robshaw, Danny Kerr, Joe Marler to um, you know, the other internationals like myself, James Howard, Jamie Roberts. It was just from one to fifteen. Sometimes we we could put out a full international team from one to fifteen. Um, and you know, I think regrettably it probably had a lot to do with the fact that Connor was leaving. We were doing really quite well until he um decided to to move to to newer um ventures with, with Italy. But um yeah, I do I had a great time at Quinns.
0: Yeah, and there's there's one one game in particular um, that I wanted to ask about. I think you might know what it's going to be, but it's the, the Challenge Cup Final in 2016. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: And um, this game, it, it, it actually popped up on my YouTube feed the other day because i have forgotten what happened at the end of it. But yeah. just tell me what that's like as a player. like With, with how that game ended, what, what goes through your mind? <laughs>
1: I mean, bearing in mind, again, that there's a story leading up to this, because I lost that same final the year before with Edinburgh yeah. against Greg Laidlaw at at the Twickenham Stoop, my new house, my new ground. And um, so I've been to the final, I've lost it. Anyway, we, we have got a great um, European Challenge Cup uh, campaign with Quinns the year after. Um, you know, again, uh, who do we play in the final? Montpellier?
0: Montpellier, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Who we'd absolutely trashed in the group stages. So we went into that final thinking we we we're gonna we're gonna actually bump these guys. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, fair play to them. They they learned hugely from that first game. Didn't try to play rugby against us and just kicked high balls non-stop. I must have had about twenty high balls on me from a player called Dimitri Kaskilis who later came to Queens. Yeah, um, and he, uh, you know, I remember him saying when he arrived, he said, you know, our our whole strategy was just to kick high balls on you guys and run after it. Essentially, what we'd done in the Heineken Cup years ago with Edinburgh against Toulouse, um, which you know completely changed the, um, the the way they starved us of ball, just kicked high balls, ran after it, and you know just didn't play rugby. Completely killed the game. But anyway, we've we've kind of managed to get ourselves back in it. And a player called Ben Botica had signed for Montpellier the, the year after, so he's leaving Queens. Um, and he comes, uh, he's, leaving the, sorry, he's leaving the season after to go to Montpellier. But he comes on with about 10 minutes to go in this final. So bearing in mind that he sat on the bench for, for the whole games, knowing exactly what the score is, knowing how much time's left on the clock. He comes on, a uh, couple of actions, you know, nothing nothing special. Uh, we still play rugby, but we are, I don't know, six points behind or something like that. We, we could win it with a try, essentially. And um, there's a turnover, probably somewhere on the 22 10 meters, maybe. And um, I looked ahead of me, there was, an, in, there was an enormous overlap, but also time was dead, the clock was dead. Every single player on the pitch knew that. I mean, I never really look at a clock and I knew it. And um, Mike Brown, myself, I think one of the other wingers over on my side, and we're screaming for the ball. Like, you know, like, and, and bear in mind that Quins was ingrained. Mm-hmm. To play rugby from anywhere on the pitch, we did not kick the ball away. You know, we we rather die with it than than kick the ball away. And he puts it on his boot, probably one of the longest kicks I've ever seen him kick into uh, Montpellier's dead ball area. And I remember their fullback was just just dropped on it, fell on it, um, killed the game, and was just laughing. He's like, "What have you guys just done?" And, and you know, there was a whole sort of charade of. Of Ben falling onto the floor and punching the punching the floor as in oh what have I done kind of thing but it's just yeah it could have been by accident I just find it hard to believe um, and uh, yeah sour so, uh, I
2: mean it's one of those those things that you you're in a cup final it's you know is is it the occasion that's got to someone is it other reasons but as as a winger that stood there looking at an overlap and you've sort of trained your whole career, your whole season is up to that point. Do you, you know, what was sort of the change room like after? Were there people putting their arm around him or, or were there people that sort of left that uh, game with some bad blood because of what had happened? Um, I don't know. And, you know, in his defence, he'd done stuff
1: like that before. We, we played against game against Northampton where I was in the stands where um you know we were winning with a minute to go something like that we had a scrum on our on our own line or on the 5 meters line and um the ball comes out and he the, the time is dead and instead of just kicking it out behind him or kicking it out anywhere on the pitch he tries to go for a really long touch finder and northampton catch it ben foden scores on the other side of the pitch and we lose so you know he has he did have a bit of a history of doing silly things like that, and you know if you look at it objectively, why if he's going to Montpellier, what has he got to gain from letting them win the final? You know, surely he'd want to win and come on a good impression, kind of thing. But it just felt so double, and you know, I was I was fuming. I didn't look at him again. Um, but yes, I'm sure some of his mates, you know, put their arms around him. And, you know, he did look gutted and whatever else. But it's just it's just silly. It's just. And, you know, it robbed me of a second chance to win the the Challenge Cup because I'd lost it the year before as yeah. well.
0: Um, and Sim, your your time at Queens then comes to an end. You you call time in your career, which a lot of people think you, you kind of did it too soon. So, so, what what were your thoughts on retirement? Did you have this plan all along to quit uh, when you were younger?
1: Um, I did have a plan. I think when I left Edinburgh, I signed a three year deal with Queens, uh, which took me to thirty one. I'd always said to myself, you know, if I make 31, I would have done a pretty good job, you know, starting my professional career when I was 18. That's pretty good going, you know, and um, I got to 31 and I was still playing week in, week out, um, you know, still still performing really well for Quinns. So I signed another two year and I was like, right, well, these are my bonus years. After this, I'll definitely stop. You know, my knees started grumbling a little bit. I needed an operation, uh, bits and bobs and um, I'm always a big believer of finishing not at your top, but certainly before things go downhill. And you know, training started becoming a bit of a struggle. Um, but again, you know, there was a there was a coaching change at Quinn's. Um Gustard came in, you know, who again is a is a great bloke who I got on really well, but he did not want to play me. He did not like me as a player. Um, so I ended up starting to you know play a lot less and it coincided with a lot of very good young talent coming through at Quincy. Um, And, you know, after that first season on the gust start, I kind of just looked at myself and I went, well, I think this is probably the moment to call it quits. You know, I don't want to be remembered for the guy that's holding bags for the last year of his contract. Um uh, and I, you know, I, I want to be remembered for the guy that you know, scored something like thirty tries and sixty games for Queens. Uh, I'm just pulling that out of my hat, I have no idea what the actual stat is, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't want to be remembered for just hanging on for the money. And um, I went to see Gusta and I "Mate, I'm done. I'm not coming back next season." and he was incredibly understanding, and uh, we came to a, a pretty good resolution because I had a year left on my contract. Um, and again, you know, I think. Queens is, is always going to be a team and a club close to my heart. But I think all my clubs probably will be. I wouldn't say I've had a lot of clubs, but you know, for Newcastle to give me the chance to come over and, and play professional rugby in the first uh, place. I was the first ever Dutch professional rugby player. So that in itself was, was really quite special. And you know, I'll be forever grateful to, to John Fletcher and Peter Walton at the time um, to then get my chance with Edinburgh for Andy Robinson and get handed an international cap by him as well is is just amazing. And to finish my career at Queens at a club that is so well regarded in, in worldwide rugby, um, you know, again, w- was nice and it also kind of made the circle go full round, you know, coming back to England and prove myself in the premiership and showing that I can do it against the best was uh, was satisfying. And I think, you know, that all probably played a role in me saying, you know, I'm not I'm not going to stick around for another year why would I want to do this you know I'd prepared for quite a long time for life after rugby I've always been very proactive I've studied I've done work experience um I'm very heavily involved in property uh, now but but also then so I think it was easier for me knowing that there was something waiting for me I had a plan I wanted to get out and um no,
2: uh, and you know I've never looked back I'm really enjoying it yeah good stuff it's been an incredible career i mean we're just looking at the stats here it's Two hundred ninety-eight games played, one hundred and thirty-five tries. I don't think there'll be many players that have played at the level that you have that have scored a, you know, they've got a better ratio than that. It's, uh, yeah, quite uh, incredible, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and no, I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. And you know, looking back, players, a lot of pundits probably say, you know, he wasn't very good in defence. Um, you know, that's probably why, for instance, I wouldn't have made a Lions squad, uh, even though I was I was close once or twice um but you know i was i was an attacking winger i wanted to be known for try scoring i didn't want to be known for defending i didn't like i didn't like defending which is probably why i wasn't very good at it i loved attacking you <laughs> know, Tax defense, and and
2: defense anyway isn't it so well exactly no, no. That, when that's you can actually score. john fletcher quote that.
1: <laughs> but um it's um you know, I was hugely physical in attack. It's it's not that it was the physical side of defending. I just wasn't very good at it. And that's probably why I didn't like it and vice versa. But, you know, I wanted to be remembered as a winger that scored a lot of tries and, and I've certainly
0: done that. Good stuff. Well, thanks very much for that, Tim. It's a, a great insight to a great career. And, um, yeah, no, thank you. We're, we're going to finish off with your um your Ultimate 15. Now, our only rule for our Ultimate 15s is you have to be in the team yourself. Fine. So, um, so you, you have no, no us, issue with that. You, yeah, you have you have <laughs> to give us fourteen players. So, uh, so let's hear who's the uh, very best you've ever played with.
1: God, this is tricky. Uh, Fifteen is an easy one. Matt Burke, oh, absolutely push. phenomenal. Like came to Newcastle. I think it was Premiership Player of the Year every year he was here. He was, he was unbelievable. Yeah, we, we had him
2: last uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was uh, yeah a great bloke to speak to as well. Yeah, he's he's phenomenal. His
1: stories—that's uh, for another time. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, Matt Burke, um, fourteen. She—that's uh, a really tricky one. Uh, I'm gonna come back to fourteen. No thirteen, probably Matthew Tate. Maybe yeah. in his prime, he was unbelievable. When he was at thirteen for Newcastle, he was a young boy, he was unstoppable. Yeah. Um, really, really unbelievable. 12, Jamie Roberts, easy, you know, world-class. 11, I'll have to obviously name myself, which is not a huge issue, but... (laughs) uh, 10, Johnny Wilkinson, no doubt. You know, don't have to explain that one. Nine, Danny Kerr, you know, amazing. Just as good with his feet as he is with his hands, off both feet, incredible player. Yeah. Um, Eight... No, it's a tricky one for me uh probably Natani Talai who was fiji captain the the game where I scored my um, where I made my debut and I scored two tries, but I played with him at Edinburgh and he was just unstoppable when he felt like it he was unbelievable uh seven chris robshaw yeah chris Robshaw is he yep, a seven
0: that's a fair, that's a fair show.
1: Yeah, just, you know, world-class, doesn't talk a lot, does everything by the way he plays rugby, just -er. grafter. Six. Tricky one. Six. Uh, What about... uh, See, Johnny Beattie probably is an eight, but can I stick him at six? Yeah, Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Stick him at six. Great guy, still speak to him on a weekly basis. Uh, You know, great footballer. Uh, and just you know good great great player in his prime again. You know, he was unstoppable. Uh four, James Horwell, ex-Australia captain, great lad, probably a better rugby player. Um <laughs> uh, five, uh poor Richie Gray. Yeah, let's put Richie Gray in there. Two yeah, huge yeah. second rows. Um, unbelievable on the line out, and you know, Lion again speaks for itself. Now, front row always gets a bit tricky because I never know who plays on which side, but Joe Marler is obviously world-class. Um, and again, weirdest player I've ever played with. <laughs> Incredibly strange character, but what a player. Uh, number two, Ross Ford. And a very similar character, not to Joe Marler, but very, very similar to Chris Robshaw in that he, you know, he leads from the front. Does it let his rugby do the playing? The talking, sorry. Um and was captain when I made my debut for uh for Fiji. And I, I remember I, I uh I shared a room with him and, and just before the game, the week leading up to the game, he he did a press release in which he said that he had full confidence in me and that, you know, I was at home within the Scotland squad and that the Scots should accept me and whatever. So that was really nice. Um number three Number three is a tight head. Yes. Yeah, I never know uh, probably Kyle Sinclair again world class um, weird weird guy in that he's incredibly he's he's a proper gangster like you should actually be scared of him he's amazing
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, you know great guy I got on really well with him when I was down at Quins. but you know as you probably saw in, in that Lions tour last year or the year before he was uh, he was monumental very good player
0: yeah
1: uh, still need to give you a 14 don't I
0: Who's uh? Ha- have you got a couple of players in your mind? Who's who's in there?
1: Well, no. Uh, who do I have on my mind? I've got a, quite a few players on my mind, but none that I really want to nominate because two of them are were my competition for Scotland, so I'm certainly not going to nominate those. Um, <laughs> who have I got on my mind?
0: Who who, who, who was on the opposite wing for, uh, for Edinburgh all those years?
1: Yeah. Of a variety of players not one that I could really single out at Quinns there was Marlon Yard who was who was a a really good rugby player but struggled with fitting into a rugby team um, you know what Sean Lamont, oh, he's really? played on the opposite yeah. side of me um, you know 100 hundred hundred plus time capped Scotland International and actually ended up playing a lot of 13 um, when I played for um, for Scotland but Great guy, super, so welcoming, always helping younger players, uh, and just one of the nicest guys. But you know, also an amazing
0: player. Excellent. Well, that's a, that's another cracking team. i have had some excellent teams over the past few weeks from um, Jimmy Noon, Mike McCarthy, and uh, and, and now this one. Yeah. So Mike like McCarthy,
1: did I make did I make Mike's team or not?
0: Uh, ooh, uh, so you uh put but, Tommy Bowen, and um, not you... His his team was very uh, very Leinster centric. Yeah, uh, As yeah
1: and I bet he put Tommy in as well. But I, sorry, I don't know Mike's a bit of a strange one. I went on a trip to Bermuda with him um, a couple of years ago, a rugby charity trip. Hands down weirdest guy I've ever known. <laughs> More so weird. Than Joe yeah, way weirder. Or in a different <laughs> way as well. Just strange. He was once, when I played a game with him for Newcastle and he was on the bottom of a rug. And he started screaming these weird things. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so the referee stopped the game thinking he was in pain and he got up and he just smiled. He was like, You're right? <laughs> and just walked off. Strangest <laughs> guy.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't wait to tell him <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Tim, thanks very much for coming on. It's been great to chat with you and some uh, some cracking stories there as well.
1: Yeah, no. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: No problem Thank at you. all. Thanks very much, Tim. Was, uh, cheers. Yeah, cheers. cheers Tim. Bye bye. All the best. Bye. That's a wrap on episode six, everyone. Thanks once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's chat with Tim as much as we did. Thanks once again for your ongoing support of the Northern Rugby Podcast channel as well. So keep hitting those like and subscribe buttons while you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or YouTube. We'll see you guys next time for episode seven.